I Lived with a Killer is part of the Real Crime Collection in the Reels Files on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to get new episodes each Thursday. Then, go to Reels.com to find chilling programs like this when you watch TV. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll find only on Reels Channel. Michael and Susan Bear forge a bloody trail across California. Thirteen stabbing wounds to the face and throat. Sending Michael's ex-wife and daughter fleeing for their lives. She was absolutely convinced that we were in danger. When they use their own unique theology to justify the killings. Their religious views just seemed to be these half-baked ideas which would justify killing people. They had a detailed plan of how they're going to kill Ronald Reagan. It earns them the nickname, the San Francisco Witch Killers. While young Jen struggles with the truth about her father. There were two words that I did not know. There was a B word, bludgeoned. And there was a, a D word. It was decapitated. Michael Bear is a disturbed man obsessed with violence. Susan Barnes is a delusional woman with radical religious views. They meet, and it's the perfect storm. When they justify their violent and senseless killing spree as a religious duty, the media dub them the San Francisco Witch Killers. But to his only daughter, Jennifer, Michael starts off as James Carson, a loving and devoted father. Jennifer Carson, daughter. When I was born, my mother worked as an elementary school teacher, and my father stayed home with me. He changed my diapers, he fed me, he braided my hair, and was very hands-on. He was always very kind to me. And so my memories of him at this time were incredibly nurturing. Michael Fleeman, true crime author. James's hippie past colors his life as a husband and father. My mother and father met at college in the late 1960s, and they were involved in the counterculture movement and war protest movement and so on. And so they were a very bohemian kind of hippie family. James identified with the counterculture. He protested the Vietnam War, and he took drugs. But hippie James also has a dark side. He would lose his temper, get very angry at someone and say, I'm going to kill them. And my mother took that in a way that people use that phrase, you know, I'm so mad at my boyfriend, I could kill him. As the years passed and he was using that phrase more frequently and he was using it with rage, she was starting to say, is he going to harm someone? There was an incident where he said it and he went and got his gun and headed towards the door. And she got the gun away from him. James's wife, Lynn, tries to ignore the gut feeling she has that something is terribly wrong with her husband. She seemed to be going back and forth with his dangerous and bad behavior to, oh, he's not serious. She kept telling herself that, no, you know, he can't be dangerous, you know, in this way. But as James's drug use increases, so does his obsession with violence. 
My mom became very concerned that my father's recreational hippie drug use was going from recreational to more of a controlling presence in his life. He was talking about how there should be a violent overthrow of the government and politicians should be assassinated and, you know, this world leader should be killed, that world leader should be killed. Then he started telling really bizarre stories. He said that when he was a teenager, he killed someone with his mind. And so there was just so much violent talk. Finally fed up, Lynn confronts her husband. He and my mom started having a lot of conflict around the time I was three and four. There was a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of pushing and shoving and so on. And the last straw for my mom was when a glass was thrown in. The glass shattered and cut my knee. She made the decision to take me and leave him. Soon after, James meets wealthy divorcee Susan Barnes at a party. Susan is nine years older than James, and she's a good-looking lady, and she has a reputation as a flirt. The party was at Susan's house, and he showed up at the party, and he never left. He instantly started living there, and they were like gasoline in a match. I mean, they just were explosive. From the start, James is drawn to Susan's eccentricity. When Susan met James, she said, isn't your name Michael? And he says, no, 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 it's James. And she says, no, I think your name is Michael, after the archangel who kicked Satan out of heaven. Susan said that was his true name from God. Susan claimed to be psychic, and James ate it up. She convinces James that in their past lives they were lovers, and that they were together in ancient Egypt and medieval Europe. In Susan... James finds a partner to share his love of psychedelic drugs. Harry Allen, Susan Barnes' attorney. They were into drugs, their marijuana, peyote, which they thought was some religious uh, drug that they were using, and uh, they were involved in using these drugs, selling these drugs. As their drug use increases, James and Susan slowly lose touch with the world. With custody shared between her parents, four-year-old Jen visits the couple on the weekends. My first visit to Susan's house, I'm going up to this normal-looking house, and then the door opens, and instead of furniture, there are like a 100 potted plants and trees. And so here I am, a young child, and I'm walking into this dark, like, haunted forest with a woman who, to me, looked like a Disney villain. I was just incredibly frightened. With James and Susan preoccupied by hallucinogens, four-year-old Jen is left alone to fend for herself. I was sleeping on the floor. If I needed something, you know, Daddy, I want a glass of water. He was passed out. And I remember climbing in kitchen drawers to get to the counter to try to find food because they hadn't fed me. I remember dialing zero on a rotary phone and asking the operator for mommy. My visits there were horrific. But as the excessive use of mind-altering drugs continues, 
James and Susan take on a dangerous new focus. When Susan came into the picture, he went from kind of this weird obsession with talking about violence to having it take on a strange religious tone. You know, they started talking about extremist kind of religious faith. Susan would talk about this person being a demon or that person's a demon, they need to be killed. Susan starts having delusions and she thinks God is talking to her. Young Jen soon becomes a target. I was asking my father to rub my back before bed. You know, can you rub my back like mommy does? And he stepped out of the room for some reason. Susan told me I was going to hell. She called me a demon. And she scratched my back with jagged fingernails and left open wounds on my back. When I got home from that visit, I said, you know, they didn't feed me. And my mom thought that meant they didn't give me a cookie or something. And I really meant that all two days I was not fed. And I told her some of the bizarre things that Susan said. And then I told her my back hurt. And she lifted my shirt and gasped because she could see open wounds. Lynn reaches out to family members for help. She had had several very disturbing phone conversations with my father, and she also had several very disturbing letters. And at this point, she was absolutely convinced that we were in danger. She thought that they would hurt her. She thought that they would kidnap me. And she truly believed that the two of them together were incredibly dangerous. But as she went to the authorities, she talked to family members, she talked to friends, no one believed her. They all treated her like a bitter ex-wife. But Lynn's worst fears are confirmed when she gets a terrifying call from James and Susan. They were going to go and travel to five or six continents was their plan. And right before they went on this trip, they called my mom and they said, we're picking up Jenny. She believed that they were planning on taking me with them. I believe they even inquired about some documents like my birth certificate. And they said, we're going to be there in an hour. A desperate Lynn feels she has no choice but to disappear with her daughter. And so we got in a car and we went to Southern California. She was going to kind of try to vanish into the urban sprawl of Southern California. As Lynn and Jen flee, James and Susan leave the comfort of their Arizona home and head out into an unsuspecting world capable of anything. She truly believed they were going to kill someone. Did you know you can stream the I Lived With a Killer TV series as well as Reel's companion programs, Murder Made Me Famous, and Autopsy on Roku and Fire TV? Well, you can. Just download the Reel's app and subscribe. If you've got Prime Video, Reel's is on Amazon channels too. I Lived With a Killer comes from the real crime fans at Reel's channel. Find Reel's on your TV by going to reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. James Carson and his new wife, Susan, are a dangerous match. 
They share an obsession with violence and extreme religious beliefs that earn them the nickname, the San Francisco Witch Killers. As they indulge in mind-altering drugs, they become increasingly radicalized, prompting James's ex-wife to flee with their young daughter, Jennifer. Four-year-old Jen struggles to understand her separation from her father. When we left, I was very angry because I didn't fully understand why, you know, I, I didn't understand the, the things that he was saying that were very disturbing. Life on the run is difficult for Jen and her mother. When we took off, she had a good teaching job. We had a decent place to live. And then all of a sudden, we're living in poverty. Sometimes we're living semi-homeless. When I did see relatives, I was told not to tell them where we lived. But at no point did my mom tell me that we were in hiding. She told me that I wouldn't be seeing daddy for a while that he was sick and he needed to get better. When James and Susan return from an overseas trip, James attempts to make contact with his daughter. Because James doesn't know where his ex-wife and daughter are living, he sends letters to relatives, hoping somehow these letters will get to Jen. But he is now a very different man than the loving father she once knew. James has already started calling himself Michael. Now Michael and Susan are using the last name Bear. They have completely transformed themselves into different people. My father always loved bears and kind of identified with them as, as kind of a totem. My mother had called him Bear as a nickname. As Michael and Susan Bear, the couple declare themselves Muslim and embark on a drug-fueled religious quest. It had to do with sort of half-baked idea on the Muslim religion, and somehow they felt that these drugs uh, had some bearing on that. They create their own brand of Islam with bits of mysticism, and they embrace the idea of jihad. They want to become religious warriors. They become vegetarians and radical environmentalists and start making a living selling pot. The couple hitchhikes up and down the Pacific coast in search of like-minded friends. In early 1980, they land in San Francisco. They move to Haight-Ashbury and they blend right in. They're hanging out with people, selling drugs, still sort of living that 60s hippie lifestyle. In San Francisco, Michael and Susan befriend 23-year-old Karen Barnes. She grew up in Georgia, where she was an extra in a movie, Smokey and the Bandit. And Burt Reynolds took her aside and said, you really have something, I think you should go into acting. So she chose to move out to Los Angeles. She was Jane Fonda's housekeeper. She later decided to move up to San Francisco. As kind of a, a bohemian artistic person, she was really drawn to the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco. Preaching their own personalized religion, the Bears adopt Karen as their acolyte. They like talking about kind of similar things that she did, you know, art, history, religion, that sort of thing. Karen's friends warn her not to get too close to this disturbed couple, but Karen seems to get sucked into this world of drugs and mystic philosophy. She rents a basement apartment, pays for it with her social security payments, and that's where all three of them live. 
In Twisted Michael's mind, an attraction develops between him and his young disciple. As Michael's attraction to Karen grows, Susan becomes increasingly jealous. Susan begins to think Karen has sinister and ulterior motives. In her mind, Susan believes that because of her psychic energy, she's vulnerable to witches. Susan latches on to that and begins to believe that Karen is a witch. Karen Barnes was very disturbed by their behavior, and she had told friends as well as her mother on the phone that she was frightened. Convinced that her psychic power is fading away, Susan decides that Karen is the cause. Michael feels it's his responsibility to protect his wife, so he agrees to kill Karen. On the night of March 6th, Michael and Susan surprise Karen in the kitchen. Michael grabs a frying pan and creeps toward Karen. Susan says, do it. Michael strikes her over the head with the frying pan, and then he hesitates. Susan grabs a paring knife and starts stabbing Karen. And then Michael takes the knife and he continues the stabbing. 13 stabbing wounds to the face and throat in total. Karen's lifeless body is left lying on the kitchen floor. They killed her for no reason. Convinced they've committed a holy act and rid the world of an evil witch, Michael and Susan flee San Francisco. In hiding, Jen and her mom struggle to make ends meet. We were moving often, we were renting rooms, we were sleeping on couches with maybe someone she had made friends with. My mother wants to lay low, so she doesn't necessarily want to give her social security card for a job, so she's working three jobs. She's going to do whatever it takes to keep her only child safe. And it was a, a really challenging time. I think the thing that is the most difficult about this is that my mother believed we were in danger and almost no one believed her. Lynn's instincts about Michael and Susan are more accurate than she realizes. On March 7th, 1981, police discover the lifeless body of Karen Barnes. San Francisco police interview members of the Haight-Ashbury community and they find out that Karen is living with a couple named Michael and Susan. Unfortunately, police have nothing else to go on. They just knew that Karen had these two strangers living with her for a while, and then when Karen was killed, the strangers were gone. Michael and Susan spend the next year traveling up and down the Pacific coast between California and Oregon. Like the disturbed duo and natural-born killers, they are both a couple in love and ruthless killers on the run. In May 1982, the Bears find work on a pot farm in Northern California's Humboldt County. Michael gets a job doing security. They even give him a firearm to protect the farm. But Michael and Susan's odd behavior disturbs the people around them. Everyone who was working there said that these two were just behaving bizarre. They were doing self-defense drills, and they always saw them with weapons, and they were constantly talking about violence, and so they were really bizarre and off-putting. The bears clash with one of the other farm workers, 
Clark Stevens. Soon, Susan once again suspects she has a witch in her sights. It starts out as a difference of opinion about how to properly manicure pot plants, but it quickly escalates. Stevens could be an abrasive guy, loud, uses profanity, he speaks his mind. Susan feels Stevens is disrespecting her. Michael once again leaps to his wife's defense. Just as Susan was possessive of Michael with Karen, Michael gets possessive of Susan. The witch killers know exactly what they need to do. The San Francisco witch killers, Michael and Susan Bear, believe they're on a mission from God to rid the world of evil witches. Fearing for herself and her daughter, Michael's ex-wife takes daughter Jen into hiding. After years on the run, Jen adapts to her unusual life. So I was very coached to keep secrets. And I got in the habit of, of keeping a lot of secrets and being very controlled with what I said or didn't say. Jen finds inventive ways to explain her father's absence to her friends. I had one story that my father was a roadie for the Grateful Dead. And I picked that band because at the time they were always on tour. They never went home. And so I thought that was a really safe bet to explain why he never visited. In May 1982, Michael and Susan are working on a pot farm in Northern California when they clash with one of the other farm workers, Clark Stevens. They decide the friction must mean Stevens is a witch. They said that he was verbally abusive to Susan and they had this just whole narrative about what a horrible person Clark Stevens was. Alone one day at the farm, the bears make their move. Michael shoots Clark Stevens in the head, killing him. They take his body out to a pot field, cover it in accelerant and burn him. After hiding the charred remains of their second victim under a pile of manure, the bears flee the farm. Out of money and on the run, the couple is hitchhiking in nearby Trinity County when they spot a caravan of police cars racing towards them. Michael and Susan become terrified. They think the cops are after them. In fact, the police are on an unrelated search and rescue mission. They were looking for a missing hiker. And all of a sudden, these two crazy-looking individuals dressed in rags with ratty hair start running around in different directions, screaming. When the lead police car stops at the side of the road, Michael and Susan drop their backpack and flee into the woods. This rescue team is just like looking at each other like, what just happened, you know? Then one of the individuals in the rescue crew noticed that the weirdos had dropped a backpack. Inside the backpack, police make a shocking discovery. There was a gun, a couple fake IDs, and this manifesto called a cry for war in his manifesto michael lays bare the depths of his delusion it calls for targeted bombings and political assassinations and also speaks of this impending nuclear war that he and susan believed was imminent it was gibberish and, and it had these half-baked ideas about justifying killing people basically 
there was detailed plans to kill witches. And they had a list of the witches. And the list included Johnny Carson, who was a American late night entertaining host. There was Governor Jerry Brown, who was then the governor of California. And there was a very clear, detailed plan of how they're going to kill Ronald Reagan. Authorities are immediately put on high alert, but all they have to go on is a fake driver's license under the name Richard Arada. Two weeks after the murder of Clark Stevens, the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office is called to the farm. Some of the workers had seen a farm dog playing with what they thought was a ball. But when they took a closer look, it turned out to be a human skull. Police search the area and find the charred remains of Clark Stevens. When police question the farm workers, they're told that a couple named Susan and Michael Bear had worked on the farm, but that they took off around the time that Clark was killed. But a background check on the names Michael and Susan Bear leads nowhere. Of course there's no record of these people because they weren't using their real name. They didn't know who these people were. They didn't have any fingerprints, so their investigation didn't get much further. In their haste to flee Trinity County, Michael and Susan are separated. Attempting to reach their safe house and reunite with Susan, Michael is hitchhiking near Los Angeles when he's recognized by a passing motorist. Michael is hitchhiking when he spots a guy he knew who worked on the pot farm. The driver calls police to report that a man wanted for murder in Humboldt County has been spotted along the road. But the young officer who is dispatched mistakes Michael for another suspect. When an officer sees Michael on the side of the road, he seems to fit the description of a suspect they were looking for in a sexual assault that took place in a nearby city. Michael Bear is apprehended not as a murder suspect, but as a man wanted in a sexual assault. Thinking quickly, Michael hides his gun in the back of the police car. At the station, he claims his name is Richard Arata and insists he has nothing to hide. He acts like a polite man. He convinces police there's nothing going on. Police take a picture of Michael to show to the sexual assault victim. When she insists that he's not the man who attacked her, the killer is set free. By the time police find the gun in the back of the cruiser, Michael has reunited with Susan hundreds of miles away. But during the interrogation, Michael makes a crucial mistake. When the detective runs the name Richard Arata, a report comes up that Trinity County authorities found that name in a backpack that somebody left on the side of the road while running into the woods. From the photo, police in Trinity County confirm that the hitchhiker is the same man they saw drop the backpack. And they hand over to the homicide detective this manifesto they found in the bag that calls for the assassination of President Reagan. While the manifesto that declares prominent public figures are witches is passed on to federal authorities, detectives follow up on another lead from Michael's interrogation. Michael gives police the name of his wife's ex-husband while they track him down in Scottsdale. And the ex says that Susan's name is Susan Barnes and that her new husband's name is James Carson. Authorities finally know the real names of their killers, but the pair is in the wind. Michael and Susan are on the run and more desperate than ever. 
when Jen and her mother receive a terrifying knock at their door. Believing that they're on a mission from God to kill witches, Michael and Susan Bear murder two people in cold blood. Michael's daughter Jen lives in hiding with her mother, who is terrified that Michael and Susan will find them. After Michael is mistakenly set free by police, Jen and her mother are shocked by a knock at their door. So in 1982, men in black literally showed up at our door. And they said, ma'am, we're the Secret Service, and we want to talk to you about Mr. Carson. And she said, how did you find us? And they just laughed and said, we're the Secret Service, you know. I was sent to my room, and I overheard some of it. I knew that, that Daddy was in trouble. The agents questioned Lynn about her ex-husband. They asked her to describe who he was, how she met him, how long they were married, his last known address. And then they asked very specific threat assessment questions. It's like, did you ever hear him say he wanted to kill any public officials? She knew at that point that he had made a substantial threat against the president. Authorities are finally aware of how dangerous Michael and Susan truly are. But they are no closer to tracking them down. By January of 1983... Michael and Susan are cold and broke. The couple catch a ride with a passing motorist named John Hellyer. He had been in Bakersfield doing some uh, work of some kind down there, and he was moving some of his property to some other place, and they were hitchhiking, and he just picked them up. Soon, Susan and Michael turn violent. They had hitchhiked probably two to 300 miles with uh, Mr. Hellyer in his pickup truck, and uh, at some point, she accused him of touching her in a sexually suggestive or inappropriate manner. And they got into a confrontation. Susan tells Michael that the driver is clearly a powerful witch and that he has to be terminated. A physical fight breaks out in the car and Hellyer produces a gun. Michael grabs Hellyer's gun and points it at his head. Susan yells at him, shoot him. Hellyer throws on the brakes. The car comes to a stop on a gravel lot. Michael eventually wins the struggle for the gun, and he shoots Hellyer in the head in plain view of passing motorists. As police arrive, the bears flee the scene. A chase ensued. It speeds, I guess, in excess of 100 miles an hour, according to the police reports. And eventually, uh, she crashed it into a ditch. When police caught up with the pair, Susan turned to the cops and started bragging, could you believe my driving? Wasn't that some great driving? That was all me. My old man couldn't drive that good. She's bragging and boasting about how fabulous her getaway driving was. Soon, news of Michael and Susan's arrest reaches Michael's nine-year-old daughter, Jen. My mother was standing outside of my school when I came out. And she said, I want to walk home with you. We were walking. And she said, do you remember that I told you that daddy was very sick and that we couldn't see him? I kind of nodded. And I found this really strange and disturbing because for the last few years prior to this, 
My father had become a forbidden subject with with anyone and everyone. So I was looking at her and she said, Daddy got even more sick and he hurt a bunch of people and he's going to go to jail so that he's safe and other people are safe. I waited a moment and then I turned to her and I said, are the hurt people dead? And she just had tears streaming down her face and she said yes. I remember at that point we just started walking home, we're holding hands, we have tears streaming down our faces. I believe we walked the whole rest of the way in silence. It was incredibly sad and I remember thinking how sad my mom was and that I didn't want to ever see her cry that much again. So when I got home, I tried to deal with it on my own. But at only nine years old, Jen is too young to cope with the trauma. I started to think if my daddy could kill people, then anybody could kill. And the world felt very scary, very dangerous. I started sleeping with knives and scissors under my pillow or under my bed. And there was just kind of constant suicidal thoughts. I would be walking to or from school and I would think I could just jump in front of that car and it'll be over. So it was incredibly suicidal for, I'd say, about the first year after I was told. As the Carsons sit in jail, charged with the murder of John Hellyer, Michael becomes agitated. When they were arrested, my father became very upset that he was not getting very much attention. So he wrote a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle, the paper that the Zodiac Killer had famously written letters to, and said, how many people do we have to kill to get attention? The couple are angry. They want the opportunity to share their philosophy. They believe the killings are justified, and they want to explain why. Michael and Susan agree to talk, but only if reporters are present. So there was this bizarre press conference where this Jewish man and this Christian woman claimed that Allah told them to kill. At the press conference, the couple spends more than five hours rambling about their religion, their philosophy, and bragging about their success in killing witches. With cameras rolling, they confess to all three murders. It's the only case that I've ever had where my client would not speak to me. And I was sitting in my living room watching television one night and the news came on. And there they were confessing to three murders on local television uh, in order to get publicity about it. And that's how the San Francisco police were able to solve the case. It may be that if, if that had never happened, that case would still be unsolved. I've been told they were suspects in at least 12 other homicides. As they walked up to the mic, Susan said to my father, now Michael, we're only gonna talk about the ones in California. Michael and Susan are dubbed the San Francisco witch killers by the press, achieving the fame they desire. In 1984, the couple is put on trial for murder. The trial just became a complete circus. It was called the San Francisco Witch Trial. The reason for that is that they used the defense that they were being psychically attacked. 
So their expert witnesses were witches and warlocks. And during the trial, they were making out at the defendant's table with their tongues down each other's throats as we're talking about these poor innocent victims. Michael and Susan are found guilty of all three murders and are sentenced to 75 years to life in prison. Some months later, I found a stack of newspaper articles my mom had in a drawer. And I remember reading the articles and there were two words that I did not know. There was a B word that I now know as bludgeoned. And there was a, a D word I didn't know. Um, it was decapitated. Faced with the gruesome details of her father's crimes, nine-year-old Jen copes by compartmentalizing. The way I started to be able to function was that I put these people in two different categories. There was James Clifford Carson, who was my father, who, you know, brushed my hair and took care of me. And then there was Michael Bear Carson, who was the serial killer. Jen's father continues to write her letters from prison, just as he did when she was on the run. I think one of the things that was so hard for me a year or two after the arrest was that I had gotten letters from him from a relative. And this well-meaning relative is, you know, giving them to this 10, 11-year-old kid thinking it's best for a child to have contact with their father. But for me, I'm getting letters from the boogeyman. In my hand, I'm holding letters from a serial killer. They would be very disjointed and rambling. They would jump from one subject to the other in kind of a stream of consciousness. And they were benign in a way that kind of freaked me out. You know, someone talking about a book they just read when I know that the hand that's writing these letters had legend and decapitated people. It was just so disturbing to me. Jen tries to get on with her life. But having a serial killer as a father continues to haunt her. By her early 20s, she is once again suffering from nightmares. I was working as a school teacher, and there was a Friday that I was nodding off as I was teaching. I was sitting on a stool in front of the class because I had suffered from nightmares that week. I called one of my best friends from work, and I said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I have to do something. I made the decision to go see him in person. I was really big on closure at that time, you know, and that pop psychology concept. And so I said, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to say goodbye to him and I'm, you know, going to get some closure. Jen goes to meet her father in prison to say goodbye to him for good and comes face to face with a killer. I was so stunned. As one half of the infamous San Francisco witch killers, Michael Bear Carson murders three people in cold blood. He justifies the killings on religious grounds, claiming they were necessary to rid the world of evil witches. Convicted of first-degree murder, he's sentenced to 75 years to life. After suffering for years, Jen Carson decides to meet her serial killer father in prison 
face to face. I was incredibly nervous and I strangely dressed up. So, you know, everyone else is wearing very casual clothing and I'm dressed as if I'm going to a job interview. It was almost an act of desperation to not look like the daughter of a serial killer, whatever that may be. I thought it was going to be as it is on crime shows, Law and Order, CSI, where there would be a glass and a phone. So I was all prepared for the glass and phone and prepared what I was going to say. I walk through the door and I find it looks like a lunchroom. I was so stunned that I was not going to have that boundary of that glass separation. And I'm just kind of in shock. And then this man who's about my height comes and hugs me, which startled me because the last time I saw my father, I was knee high and he had been incredibly tall. I just became as stiff as a board. And he said, Jenny, it's daddy. And I was so shocked that I felt nothing. You know, I mean, for so many years, I I missed this man who brushed my hair and fed me breakfast. It was strange that I was able to keep up this separation that I had made in my mind that my father, James Carson, in some ways had died many years before. It probably was my only way to cope. Jen's plan is to say goodbye to her father for good. There's this famous movie, Waiting to Exhale, where the main character after a divorce sets the ex's car on fire and she just walks off, you know, into the sunset. And I definitely felt like I was going to confront him and then I was going to walk away from the prison a new and free woman. As I went to leave, he said, now you'll come visit me next month. You'll write me a letter next week. You'll call me. It was then that I realized he thought I was establishing contact, that we were about to begin a lifelong relationship as father and daughter again. When he realized that I was not going to be calling him, writing letters, you know, meeting with him again, these letters that he had written me that were always bizarre, but also very kind to me, um, became very, very angry. And I realized what my mom had experienced which was seeing someone with unbridled, like, rage, you know? And it was just incredibly frightening to me. Ultimately, Jen seeks a restraining order to stop the barrage of threatening letters from her father. But in 2014, she gets another surprise. After the final sentencing for my father and stepmother, they were given three 25-to-life sentences for the three known murders in California. I was told that after the final sentencing occurred, many of the cases elsewhere were dropped. They were not going to spend time, money, or effort to prosecute offenders who were already serving life. And so everyone believed that they would be serving 75-to-life. Unexpectedly, in late 2014, this changed. They were given parole hearings. Reforms in the California prison system mean Michael and Susan will now become eligible for parole every five years. And so I chose to pursue fighting his parole. I think if you, you kill you know, multiple individuals, you, you should spend life in prison. Jen is certain that if released, her father will kill again. 
I know that the victim's families have expressed that they don't feel safe if he is released. I won't feel very safe if he is released. I know he has a lot of anger towards me. And then we have the factor that, that neither of them feel any guilt or remorse, which I think puts everyone at risk if they get out. If they don't feel guilty about you know, killing these other people, what would prevent them from harming others? Jen has spent her life trying to make up for her father's misdeeds. I felt guilt for the murders. And I definitely felt some sort of desire to atone for the crimes. I think I chose a helping profession because I was trying to make deposits of goodness <laughs> into this bank to balance out this evil for my father. I became a counselor in schools and I worked with students who had emotional um, disabilities and behavioral challenges, which I had struggled with as an elementary student. I also have done quite a bit of advocacy for children of prisoners and families of violent offenders, as well as violent crime victims. Helping others absolutely gives you kind of a sense of purpose, you know? And also there is a almost contentment or peace that I found that I can find something good that comes from this horrific experience. I Lived With a Killer comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of I Lived With a Killer, including tell-all interviews with family members and crime scene photos. You'll get only on Reels Channel.